There's a very old story that I never heard until a couple of years ago. It's a story that's been told for thousands of years, both in Jewish and Muslim communities. A version of this story appears in the Quran, as well as in the Jewish Midrash, which is a collection of texts that inform and help interpret the Jewish community's understanding of the Torah. According to contemporary rabbi and author Jeffrey Salkin, this story is actually one of the most likely stories to be named if you ask a contemporary Jewish person to tell you a story that they learned as a child about their faith. Many contemporary Jewish people don't even realize that this story isn't actually in the Torah itself. It is so well known. Um, and the story goes something like this. Abraham's father, Terah, was an idol maker and a merchant in Ur. Terah went away on a journey, and he left Abraham in charge of the store. And Abraham took a stick and shattered all the idols in the store. And then he placed the stick in the hand of the largest idol. When Terah returned from his journey, I think we have a picture of this, he found his merchandise in pieces on the floor. What happened? He demanded to know. Oh, father, it was terrible, Abraham said. The small idols got hungry and they started fighting for food. And finally, the large idol got angry and he broke them all into little pieces. Idols don't get hungry, said Terah. They don't get angry. They don't speak. They're just idols. Upon hearing this, Abraham smiled and said, Oh, father, if only your hear, ears could hear what your mouth is saying. If they're just idols, why then do you worship them? This is the story. If they're just idols, why do you worship them? Millions of our Muslim and Jewish brothers and sisters learned, right, about this father of our three Abrahamic faiths, that as a kid, Abraham, Abraham, Avram, was a cheeky young man who saw the futility of idolatry and called it out, and he smashed the idols. Rabbi Salkin has written a whole book about the importance of this story through the ages on Jewish identity. As he says in his introduction, the midrash about Abraham smashing his father's idols is an essential part of Jewish communal memory. It's part of the way Jews define themselves as the children of an iconoclast. Now that's an interesting word, right? Iconoclast. I've generally understood it to be like a rebel, a provocateur, right? Someone who doesn't give a crap what you think. They're going to say what they want to say. If it offends you, all the better. Twitter is a great place for iconoclasts, right? A lot of them there. And the dictionary definition does back that up, right? I have it up here. Someone who attacks cherished ideas or traditional institutions. But the second definition you'll often see reflects the actual origin of the term, okay? An iconoclast is a destroyer of images used in religious worship. To be an iconoclast is to be an idol smasher. And this is what Rab Rabbi Salkin claims is central to Jewish identity, that despite the fact that it isn't even in the Torah, this story has persisted through millennia because it connected and informed what it meant to be part of the community of Yahweh. 
Jews understood themselves to be the ones smashing the idols, confronting the sacred taboos, revealing the falseness and futility of worshiping what's ultimately human-made. As a person of Jesus-centered faith, I can't help but even wonder if Jesus might have heard a version of this story as a young boy. It turns out that the earliest records we have of it do would have come before Jesus, so it is quite possible. And how that story might have shaped him, his own understanding of what he was called to do. Well, I start with this little story because, as I think most of you know by now, although a few of you are new and so you don't, we've been talking ourselves about smashing some idols here at Haven for the last several weeks, basically all summer. And we've been considering how, millennia after Abraham, we still make idols, okay? It's just that they're human constructs instead of statues, right? Our idols aren't made of stone or porcelain, ceramic, glass. They're frameworks, they're worldviews, they're ways of understanding the world and prioritizing some points of view over others. And it's not that these points of view are all completely invalid in and of themselves, but they distort seeing the whole truth when they're not held in tension with other viewpoints when they're elevated, when they're prioritized, then they become idols. We've spent several weeks considering and unpacking specific ones, and I'd encourage you, if you're new or if you miss some throughout the summer, which is understandable, lots of people have been in and out throughout the summer, um, but all of these are on our website. I'm just going to review the six idols we've looked at real quick. Um, but if you're interested in learning more about any of them, about all of them, they're all on our website. You can listen to the teachings there. You can look at the notes, whatever is helpful for you. These are the ones we've named, the idol behind patriarchy, androcentrism. I think we have the list, yeah. Androcentrism is the idol behind patriarchy. It's the valuing of what is seen as masculine over what is understood to be feminine in any culture. It leads us even to imagine God as male, and suppress the feminine within the divine. We've talked about heteronormativity as an idol. Heteronormativity understands biological sex, gender, and sexuality as these like simple binaries and doesn't make space to bless and affirm as fully created in God's image those who may not fall within that binaries. We've talked about whiteness as an idol how whiteness functions as a kind of collective blindness that can keep white folks from fully seeing the harm that they as a community inflict on people of color, not simply through experiences of individual bias, but through historic and cultural system of oppression that assimilates those of European descent to concentrate power and hold more of it than people of color. We've talked about the idol of evangelicalism which you could argue uses theology to uphold its social system. And the androcentrism, the heteronormativity, the whiteness embedded within it. Disinheriting from the family those who find God leading them in ways that the framework of the system won't support. More recently, we've talked about nationalism. I would expect that our particularly Christian nationalism, that our Christian identity is connected to the political state. Wrongly, I believe, insisting that faithfulness to God is synonymous with allegiance to your country, including actions to purify the state 
which actively excludes those who are seen as other because of their race, ethnicity, language, or religion. And finally, two weeks ago, we talked about capitalism, how that lures us with a false sense of freedom, but it's really a freedom that's ultimately rooted in the freedom to exploit others in order to enrich yourself, rather than to live generously and cooperatively, caring for those in need. So these are just six examples, I would say, of some of the big idols at work in our day. There are lots more we could explore. We could keep going and going, I am sure. And maybe at some point we will revisit this conversation and do some more. But while there's certainly more at work in our society we could name, I think these six are enough for us to look at them and acknowledge it's real. Our world, our culture, here in the Bay Area, we have an idle problem. And that idle problem can cause real harm. Juan Luis Segundo is a liberation theologian from Uruguay, and he names the link between our distorted views of God that stem from our idols and the harm that's done in that God's name. He says it this way, our falsified and inauthentic ways of dealing with our fellow human beings are allied to our falsification of the idea of God. Our perverse idea of God and our unjust society are in close and terrible alliance. Does that make sense? As we've been naming throughout our series, our idols distort our vision of God. And when that happens, so often do injustice and oppression. So what do we do when our eyes are opened and we start to see the idols in our midst? Is seeing them enough? Today, I want to conclude this journey with a time of collective response. A time where we consider how we might have been, in, be, been influenced by some of these idols and what it might mean to change direction. We started this whole series in the spring with a story from the Hebrew Bible about idolatry. It was about Moses and Aaron and the golden calf. And today we're going to wrap this series considering another story around idolatry in the Hebrew Bible and what was done about it. Now this story isn't quite as charming as the Jewish Midrash, but it is also a story about being an iconoclast. And I bring us into it as an invitation for what it might mean for Haven, for each of us to take up this work of shattering idols in our day too. So this is the story of King Josiah. He lived in the 7th century BC. I'll just give you a little background. It's the time of the divided kingdom. We have a picture of that. When Israel had separated into two kingdoms, the north and the southern kingdoms, okay? Israel and Judah is what they were called. And both kingdoms had long had issues with idolatry at this point. They struggle with faithfulness, so God has been sending prophets to both kingdoms to warn them that if they don't change their ways, self-correct, they're going to experience some real judgment. The northern kingdom is the first to go. Around a century before Josiah, that kingdom fell to Assyria, and they were brutally wiped out. Those that weren't massacred were scattered into exile. And Josiah is now the king of the southern kingdom, called Judah. And Judah was having its own issues with faithfulness. His grandfather Manasseh 
was a particularly brutal and unholy dictator who apparently even sacrificed at least one of his own children. And when he died, his son was only on the throne for two years before he was murdered. And then the throne comes to eight-year-old Josiah. And as the biblical authors tell the story, even as a young man, Josiah is different than most recent kings that had gone before him. By 16, he was a devout person of faith. The scripture says it this way, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. He's a reformer. He's open to change. He understands it's necessary. Maybe he's heard the words of some of the prophets and takes them seriously. Jeremiah, the prophet, was a contemporary of his and was prophesying as a teenager in the same era. So one of the bigger projects <coughs> Josiah undertakes to help right the ship in Judah is to do some maintenance and purification of the temple. Apparently it's been a while since anyone's done this. Okay, so Josiah orders the folks who work in the temple to like use some of the money they've been collecting to rebuild the parts that aren't doing so well. And a number of folks begin the work and while they're cleaning up and repairing the temple, Hilkiah the priest stumbles upon a copy of the Torah, the sacred Hebrew scriptures. Apparently, no one had actually had a copy for, for decades. Remember, back then, written copies of things were very valuable, right? Some scholars believe Josiah's tyrant grandfather may have actually destroyed them intentionally, any copies he could find. But apparently, one was hidden away, and the priest finds this book of the law, and he takes it to Josiah's assistant, a guy named Shaphan, and here's what happens next, according to 2 Kings. Then Shaphan the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam son of Shaphan, Akbor son of Micaiah, Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah the king's assistant, attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. So I'm going to stop reading right here because I think this is worth noting. Okay? Discovering the book of the law is what's just happened. And for Josiah, it is an eye-opening experience. Right? It's a oh, holy crap kind of moment. Scales falling from his eyes. Josiah has had some sense things were off, right? That's why he was doing this whole purification of the temple, etc. He got all was not well. He's a little bit woke, okay? But when Shaphan reads this law to him, that's when he realizes how far things have gotten, how far off they are from what God really intended. How deep the idolatry has penetrated into their social and religious systems. How far that is from God's heart. And his response is lament. Okay? The text says he tears his robes. Why does he do that? This was a common way in ancient Israel of embodying grief. Right At this point, it has been at least 60 years, they think, since the word of God had been read publicly 
And when he hears it, Josiah realizes how much is unraveled in those 60 years, how far off course they've gotten. And he grieves. He understands on some level how much it must grieve the heart of God. And perhaps on some level, he recognizes that the consequences might be beyond what anyone in his kingdom can imagine, which they do end up being. And he laments. Now, I don't know about you, but this series, our own Smashing Idol series, has felt a little bit like this for me. Right? Like I've gone in with a certain sense of awareness that these idols that we've been addressing, whiteness, heteronormativity, nationalism, capitalism, that they're problematic. But as we've been unpacking them together, I feel like my own awareness of the idols and the costs of them, that that's been blown open. I feel like blinders have been coming off. And as they do, it's like bright sunlight, like flooding your vision after you come out of a dark room. It's hard to adjust. You squint. It's painful. It's overwhelming to consider how long these systems of oppression have been operating, how deeply invested our culture is in them. It's painful to try to wrap my head around what the costs have been and what the costs might continue to be. And that stirs in me, like Josiah, a sense of lament. But Josiah doesn't just grieve. He doesn't just become paralyzed and overwhelmed in lament. He seeks wisdom and he seeks connection with the living God. Josiah seems, seeks counsel from the prophetess Huldah to help him understand how God perceives this idolatry that his people have fallen into, what's coming because of it. He looks for guidance from God that comes through the prophetess. And then after tearing his robes and seeking deeper spiritual understanding through, through Huldah, Josiah gathers the community to respond. And here's where we'll pick it up. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And he went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, statutes, and decrees with all his heart and all his soul thus confirming the words of the covenant written in his book. And then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. And the king ordered Hilkiah the high priest, the priests next in rank, and the doorkeepers to remove from the temple of the Lord all the articles made for Baal and Asherah and all the starry hosts. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron Valley and took the ashes to Bethel. And he did away with the idolatrous priests appointed by the kings of Judah to burn incense on the high places of the towns of Judah and on those around Jerusalem, those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and moon, to the constellations, and to all the starry hosts. He took the Asherah pole from the temple of the Lord to the Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem and burned it there. He ground it to powder, scattered the dust over the graves of the common people. It goes on and on and on and on like this. We're not going to read all of it. It's intense and brutal, but it's a big housekeeping project, cleaning house project. 
Here's a little more, skipping to verse 12. He pulled down the altars the kings of Judah had erected on the roof near the upper room of Ahaz, and the altars Manasseh had built in the two courts of the temple of the Lord. And he removed them from there and smashed them to pieces and threw the rubble in the Kidron Valley. And the king also desecrated the high places that were east of Jerusalem on the south of the hill of corruption. The one Solomon king of Israel had built for Ashtoreth, the vile goddess of the Sidonians, for Chemosh, the vile god of Moab, for Molech, the detestable god of the people of Ammon. Josiah smashed the sacred stones, cut down the Asherah poles, covered the site with human bones. He's intense. It's intense. It's an intense, idle, purging process. And then finally, after several more verses, we come to this. Verse 21, the king gave this order to all the people. Celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. Neither in the days of the judges who led Israel, nor in the days of the kings over Israel, of Israel and the kings of Judah, had any such Passover been observed. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. That's where it ends, it's with the Passover. So you see, it wasn't just enough for Josiah to have this awakening. Josiah understood that his awakening was useless if he wasn't willing to do anything about it, right? He had to clean house in some way where nothing was going to change. Whether or not it could reverse their fortunes, turn the tide on what was coming, if Josiah was going to stand before Yahweh, he understood he could only do it with integrity if he was willing not just to acknowledge but to confront the idolatry happening in his kingdom. He needed to be an iconoclast. He had to smash some idols. I think his response also reflects the reality that like a corporate response was needed, not just an individual one. Okay? Folks from ancient Israel had much more of a sense of corporate solidarity than many of us who've been raised in a contemporary Western culture can comprehend. I would argue contemporary West is invested in an idol of individualism. But this story part points to something apart from that. It says it's not just about your own personal guilt or holiness before God. That matters. But what God is angered with is also the sin of the collective. And that requires some sort of collective response. It's not just about Josiah cleaning out idols from his castle. It's about the whole kingdom together. Hearing the words of God, covenanting anew, destroying the idols. So here at Haven, we've been in this process of naming idols, confronting them theoretically as problematic. And I hope that as we've done so, some of these conversations have stirred things up for you to consider around ways you're becoming more aware of the impact of these idols in our own, your own view of the world, even your own practice of faith. But like Josiah, I think awareness without action isn't enough. It wasn't enough for young Abraham just to be aware his father was selling these empty statues. It wasn't enough for Josiah to just recognize how far off course they'd gotten. Unless we do something to clean house, unless we change course and commit to smashing idols, nothing's actually going to change. And I have to acknowledge, in many ways, I think the kind of house cleaning Josiah was leading, 
the people through was easier, right? There were actual physical statues you could tear down and smash and burn. The idols we're talking about are a lot harder to consider. How do we dismantle these? How do we tackle both the, the systemic change that's needed? This stuff we're talking about is so much bigger than a physical statue, right? So much deeper, deeply, so deeply embedded, so invisible in so many ways. And we're also talking about the deep internal work in each of us, in our own investment in these systems and structures. It's hard to figure out what you do. But you have to start somewhere, right? Two weeks ago, I encouraged us, encouraged us to resist cynical fatalism. Resist cynical fatalism. It's too easy. It's too lazy. Frankly, I believe it's too faithless to simply shrug and say, well, there's nothing we can do about any of this. It expects too little of God and the work of the Spirit not to give all that we can to participating with Jesus, led by Jesus in the work of the iconoclast. Amen? I believe, Haven, we are called, like our Jewish brothers and sisters before us, and like I believe many people throughout history are called. I believe we are called in this time and place to be smashers of idols, to be iconoclasts, people who identify the idols in our age, reveal them for what they are and the harm they produce, and participate in tearing them down so we can have a clearer, more unobstructed view of one another and the divine. Amen? Amen. Amen. Yes. And that brings us to our invitation today. As we conclude this Smashing Idols journey we've been on over the last few months, I want to make space this morning for a communal time of response. Okay? This is something different than we normally do. If you're here for the first time, we don't do this every week. But this is something I think is needed as we, as we end this series. Time to meditate together on what the Spirit might be inviting each of us to acknowledge as idolatrous in our own history, our own worldview, our own practice of faith. We want to make space to consider how each of us individually has participated in one or more of these forms of idolatry. Make space to collectively name that. Name the sin in our midst time to lament and grieve the ways we've participated, and then to begin to imagine another way, how we might participate in transformation of ourselves and the world around us. Okay? That whole imagining another way is really where we're going to be going from here. The series um, that we're going to start in two weeks, we're kicking it off with our queer and trans pride service. It's called The Home We're Building Together. And my hope is that's taking us from a place of saying, this is what we don't want, to what is it that we're living into? And what do all of us have to bring towards that? So we don't have to answer all those questions today about what comes next. That's where we're going to be going this fall. That's what we're going to be doing at the retreat. Um, but just to give you a taste of, as we lament, as we grieve today, I also invite you to allow the spirit to begin to stir your imagination for what comes next. So we're going to take the next 20 minutes or so, um, 15 to 20 minutes, 
to have a time of response. And this is how that's going to go. We have a special table in the back. It's the idol table, okay? I've got images of all the six of our idols, okay? A couple of each. And you are invited to look at what stirs you. Grab an image. Um, grab something that you feel like, man, I, I recognize that this has had power in my life in some way, right? And I, and I don't want that anymore. I want to try to transform in some way. And then you can just write something you feel like you can confess about that. It doesn't have to be super specific. It could just be saying, whiteness, I have been blind to the power of my privilege. You know, whatever it is for you. And then I'm going to invite you, there's little, uh, you can punch a hole in a safety pin and hang it on the back corner, on the back curtain. It's just a way of kind of publicly making our confessions to one another, okay? And while at the end, we'll have kind of a wall of confession. And I invite you during worship, you can go and meditate on it, take it in. At our, I'm going to then collect them. I wanted to smash stuff, I will say. I even bought glass, but we just couldn't find a way to not hurt people. So we're not doing that. But we're going to burn the idols, okay, at our Haven retreat. I will save them, and we will, we will have a big burning in the campfire. So that'll be, you know, that'll be the kind of, like, the idols are going down, all right, at least symbolically. We, obviously, we acknowledge this is a prophetic act. This is an intentional, spiritual, sacred moment. Writing something on a paper and burning it doesn't mean that whiteness has, holds no power in your life, right? It's kind of what you commit to making that act mean going forward that really matters. So, but that's what we're going to do. Um, so, we're going to have some quiet music playing in the background. We have this that is just going to remember this, these prompts. This is the uh, confession, okay? Consider the idol, choose the image, display your confession. Can you go to the next one real quick, the next slide? This is where we're going to go from there. You want to be reflecting over the coming weeks. Speak with Jesus about what smashing the idol might actually look like in your life. What practices can you commit to to change course and dismantle the power of this idol or if you do more than one, idols in your life. And then we're going to end this time. We're going to do things a little differently as we conclude that that 15 to 20 minutes, we're going to celebrate communion, okay? In the same way that at the end of the story, Josiah brought all the people together to celebrate the Passover, which is the celebration of liberation, right? It's the celebration of freedom, of deliverance. And Jesus, our communion meal that we enter into every week, is also Jesus' invitation to enter. That was a Passover meal. He's inviting all of us to experience liberation and freedom. And so that's kind of how we're going to conclude our time of lament and confession, is by taking communion together, and then um, we'll probably move into worship. We might take a few minutes to just discuss how that whole thing felt, just depending on where we're at timing-wise, okay? So that's what we're doing. Um, let me just uh, pray a quick prayer for us to kind of send us into this time, and then you're welcome to go and, and find some idols. Spirit, we thank you for the ways that you have been opening our eyes to the idols in our midst. For those of us who maybe like Josiah were a little bit woke before, had our eyes a little bit opened, but have experienced um, a deeper 
kind of blinding, sometimes um, piercing revelation. I ask for grace. I ask for grace not to fall into cynical fatalism. But would you, by your spirit, invite us into the work of dismantling, into the work of smashing, into the work of the iconoclast. And as we do that, would we experience so much freedom and liberation as we more fully and clearly and truly see you for who you really are. Amen. Amen. So go for it. As you're ready, you can grab a piece of paper. I think we have pens. I might go see if I can find some more in the back. Yeah, we probably need more pens. I'll bring those out. And take your own time. Looking for an angel.